David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. The story of Australian Jewish history really commences, as you would be aware, not here. It starts on the other side of the world. It starts really on the streets of London. And so we need to understand, first of all, what was happening in London. And much of what I'm going to talk about is familiar to you. But A, I want to try and drive a little deeper, but also B, I want to try and make it a little contemporary for us so that we can understand uh, in existential terms what was happening. But it starts on the streets of London because London in the middle of the 18th century, in the middle of the 1700s, uh, was a fascinating place. Remember that for most of the 19th century, London was going to be the biggest and busiest city in the world. And the energies that are driving up towards that entire economic and industrial revolution are about to be unleashed. Jews have not been living in London, have not been living in England at all for that long by the time we open our picture in the middle of the 1700s. They have in fact only been allowed to live in England for about a century. We know famously they were expelled in 1290 by Edward I and they were readmitted in the middle of the 1600s under Cromwell due to the efforts of various Jewish lobbies, notably Manasseh in Israel and Amsterdam, who opened up England for Jews to start coming in. And the first Jews started coming in in the late 17th century. And they were almost exclusively Sephardic Jews. They were Jews of Portuguese descent, whose families had left Portugal and Spain during, uh, at the time of the expulsion at the end of the 16th century, a century and a half before that, uh, they were readmitted to England. And you couldn't just rock up in London and say, well, here's where I want to be and what am I going to do now? You had to have means. By the time we opened the 1700s, the Sephardic Jewish community of London, which then established the Bevismarck Shul and so on, was a very economically stable and prosperous and influential micro-community. It wasn't large and they were allowed to live there but they knew that that was a kind of a tolerated existence. But in the first few decades of the 18th century we start to see large waves of immigrants coming not from Holland and respectable places like that and maybe maybe a little bit further east. We start to see Jews coming in from central Europe, particularly Germany, and even a little bit further east. And these, we're not yet, no, haven't got, yet got hordes of gefilte fish eaters coming from, from Poland and the Ukraine just yet, but we have Jews coming from Germany who are distinctly different. They are in search, they're Ashkenazim, and they are in search of greater economic opportunities and simply a better way of living. If you've been living, I don't know if you heard about it, but if you were a Jew living in Germany for most of the last thousand years, it hasn't been that pretty. Jews started 
coming into England in greater and greater numbers. And the small community that did exist soon became overwhelmed in its ability to provide welfare and care and economic opportunities for these thousands and thousands of Ashkenazic Jews coming in from Germany and Holland. They also put pressure on the local society to somehow give these thousands of Jews a type of way in which they could rise themselves in society to become economically independent and secure. And that led to some very interesting initiatives on behalf of certain political movements in England to open up the door for Jews to become naturalized. For Jews to become naturalized. Remember that we're still not really yet at this thing that we now know as the separation of church and state. And we're still not yet at that modern political entity which we call citizenship. Naturalization was seen as a way of allowing human beings, we got recognized as human beings, who were not Christian, but who were living in London and needed to have opportunities of self-advancement and economic contribution. Therefore, eventually as a result of a Whig initiative in the 1750s in England, they passed what was called the Naturalization Act that provided that very purpose that Jews could become naturalized British subjects that would afford them some rights. However, and this of course was a major step in the long journey towards what would eventually become emancipation, but within a very short space of time what happened in England as a result of what became known as the Jew Bill, what happened? There was, of course, now, okay, I know it would be difficult for you to imagine a kind of an anti-Semitic popular kind of wave of sentiment happening in England. That's not something we can really relate to. However, there was a popular wave of anti-Semitic sentiment that rose up in England in the 1750s as a result of the Jew Bill. So much so, in fact, that the Jew Bill became retracted. They repealed it. And, and just a word on that. I don't want to get too contentious, but just a word on that. Anytime you see that kind of phenomenon, someone is feeling threatened. And of course, that was the case then, that the existing guilds and merchants and growing middle class in England was feeling very economically threatened, apart from general xenophobia, but economically threatened by giving Jews economic rights. And so if you were to look a little closer at what's happening today in England, I don't think you'd have to scratch very far below the surface to see something similar. But that's not our subject tonight. That left thousands of Jews, Ashkenazic Jews in London, 
on the streets and they kept coming so that by the time we get to the 1780s we've got 20,000 Jews in London basically having to fend for themselves. Some of them, a few thousand spread out to surrounding towns in England, particularly in the southwest, in Cornwall and so on, but most of them were in London and life was tough and deprived. Most Jews made their way through by small-time peddling. Uh, there were, of course, some Jews who managed to do a few clever things here and there and make a little bit of income, but it was, for the most part, a life of struggle and deprivation for about 20,000 Jews, and it is therefore no wonder that many of those Jews had to turn to crime or petty crime and that is possible because amongst many of the ultimate convicts that were Jewish, violent crime was virtually unknown, but petty crime was absolutely pandemic. And many policemen in Britain were complaining of the high numbers of Jews that were being apprehended and sentences that they held, uh, what they constituted within the criminal element. Of course, those numbers are almost laughable by today's standards, but by Jewish communal standards, they were extremely high. And the British, as you know, as we all learnt at school, soon found that their tough law and order policies had a bit on side because they had nowhere to house criminals. And of course, the big dirty secret of the 18th century is that they were already shipping off convicts for most of the century to one of two places. Either they shipped them off to Africa, where they would get eaten, either by the local residents or by the wildlife. But they also shipped about 5,000 of them to the Americas. It's called America's dirty little secret that it was also founded on a lot of convicts. No, but they were a minority there. However, come the American Revolution from 1775 onwards, Britain can't do that. And their prisoners and their convicts are living on these massive hulks, these moored boats in the Thames. We all learnt this at school, I'm just going over, but I want you to be familiar with this because this is real. And eventually they passed a new Transportation Act in the early 1780s which allowed judges to commute death sentences which were becoming increasingly politically problematic for petty crimes to commute those sentences to transportation. And throughout the 1780s and so on we already know that the eastern coast of Australia that was now called New South Wales. No one knew what it was. There were only a few people that had ever seen it, but they knew where it was on the other side of the globe and that it had been discovered by Cook and had been recommended throughout the 1770s and the 1780s by banks as a place that England should settle. There were political and military considerations to this. The French were lurking all around the Southern Hemisphere. And Britain ultimately decided that it needed, oh, we have a social problem with our convicts. 
we have a land that needs settling, let's put together, it seems very, very logical. Yep. Sometimes we forget, because it sounds so simple. Who was Cook? I mean, who was he? He was obviously a naval officer, he was a Yorkshireman. But in today's terms, the only way we can really understand the career of someone like James Cook, in today's terms, would be to think of him as an astronaut. He was nothing short of a scientist that you send on a massive mission to somewhere that no one else can get to. Always remember that Cook's voyages were the absolute peak of navigational science in the 18th century. And if you need something done, you need to observe the transit of Venus from Tahiti. Or you need someone to find a place that you think is at the bottom of the globe that might be a continent. Or you need someone to map this thing or look for that. You would send someone like Cook. And that's when Cook discovered and mapped the eastern coast of Australia. But what? no one had been back since. And it's a lot like when we went to the moon in 1969 and we haven't been back since. And I'm here to tell you, in no uncertain terms, I'm not the only person that says it when you realise this parallel, that sending people to Botany Bay in New South Wales was like sending a convict colony to another planet. These people were not expected to be seen again. They had no idea where they were going. No one else in the civilised world would be able to get there apart from the British Navy. And that was it. And that's why it was effectively equivalent to a kind of death. Now, coming back to on a little bit more of a calm level, obviously they eventually decided to establish the first fleet. It is not the case, and I'm constant. I know that everybody sitting in this room knows this. I know that you all know this. But you'd be surprised because there's a lot of people that don't know this, and I'm constantly meeting people that don't this, know this. It is not the case, like other places where they establish an area, they establish a settlement, and they get it going, oh yeah, and eventually, after a little while, along came some Jews. Jews were in Australia from day one of European settlement. And we have to be very careful about that because Australia, of course, is a lot older and it's had human beings living here for a lot longer than European settlement. But as far as we know, we don't have any records of Jews living here before European settlement, before the 26th of January, 1788, when the first fleet arrived. Now, there were Jews on the first fleet. As anyone who's read any books on Australian Jewish history will tell you, there is still, till today, till the moment that I'm standing here telling you this, incredible confusion about just how many Jews were in the First Fleet. According to some, the, the numbers, every time you see an article or a book or an essay on this, or a research paper on this, they're offering different numbers. But it's somewhere, somewhere between 6 and 14. 
so we couldn't pro and the problem is that some of the names are difficult but there's about six to eight that we can almost a hundred percent say they were Jewish because they uh, said they were Jewish and because they refused to swear on anything but the Old Testament and because they're constantly trying to abscond from Sunday church services and because a range of reasons or because they went on to be very public about their Jewishness there's maybe six to eight that we could say of that but there may have been some more now I'm not here to talk about everybody on the first fleet but as I'm constantly saying at my talks I'm really aiming it so that if you ever find yourself at a dinner party where Australian Jewish history comes up this is what you would need to know to look informed there are two or three that go on to become extraordinarily important and those are the ones that I'm going to focus on and although I know that you've probably heard all about them before I am going to drive a little deeper because we are constantly finding out more and more but before we deal with any of the convicts on the first fleet any of the half a dozen or dozen Jewish convicts that found themselves on the first fleet and once again well even the numbers of the convict are the subject of some historical confusion ranging between 700 and a thousand but probably somewhere in the high 700s and so that if there were 10 uh, if there were say um, uh, seven Jews that's already one percent if they're teen, that's already ten. yeah which is very, very high. it's not high in terms of a Jewish population within a wider community high in terms of convicts but before with any of those there are a couple of interesting tidbits that emerge because there is also a historic that the individual that they placed in charge of the first fleet the individual that was given the commission to lead the first fleet 11 ships and this was a massive navigational achievement to take 11 ships and somewhere between 12 and 1300 people from Britain to Botany Bay and not lose a single ship that the person in charge and given the commission as well once they arrived there to set up the colony and be its first governor and who was of course Arthur Philip that Arthur Philip was Jewish we know with almost certainty I mean he wasn't okay and we've worked that out because well not halakhically Jewish anyway but his father was Jacob Phillips a teacher from Frankfurt who came sometime before Arthur was born and anyone with the name Jacob Phillips who's coming from Frankfurt to England and is a teacher and a bit of a nachschlepper is probably more than likely going to have some Jewish connections but that's just something that's interesting to look at it's also possible that the first Jewish couple to be married not married under a chuppah but coincidentally married to each other because as soon as the first fleet arrived people started getting married and they said oh actually we'd prefer that than people shacking up together 
So if convicts approached the authorities and they said, we want to get married, and this is within, within three or four weeks of arrival, there were several marriages that were performed uh, on the beaches over the course of the next few weeks. One of them was between a convict called John Hart, uh, who we're not entirely sure is Jewish, and Flora Laura. Flora Lara, actually, who definitely was Jewish. Uh, and it's interesting that that may have been the first marriage of a Jewish couple, even though it itself was not what we might recognize or call a Jewish marriage. It may have been. So there's different things that historians are trying to look at. Where, where were the Jews and how can we identify what they were doing? But obviously, I need to talk about a couple of the most important and significant uh, convicts, Jewish convicts of the First Fleet. And I know you've heard it before, but I want to go into there for a few minutes uh, because their stories are astonishing and extremely illustrative of a number of facets of early Australia. We're going to be learning a fair bit of Australian history. We're going to do revision on as well as Australian Jewish history because it's impossible to understand one without the other. And the most famous, do not call out, do not call out, please. Give others a chance to think. Do not call out. But if we were to pick the most significant and famous and amazing Jewish convict, the First Fleet, put up your hand, who would it be? Put up your hand if you know who I'm talking about. Put up your hand if you know who I'm about to talk about. I just need to, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear it. Just, just get an idea. Put up your hand if you have no idea I'm about to talk about. Oh, that's good. That's encouraging. There's a reason for being here. You know, when, um, when the first fleet landed, yep, so who was the first person, the first person, the first white person to actually set their foot on, on the shore? Who, who actually was the first person to go, here I am, Australia's begun. Who was that? It wasn't Philip, he would have been back on the boat watching. Well, it was a convict called Roos, but only because he had an officer on his back. Because the officer didn't want to get his boots wet. And so he was carried ashore, the few meters in the, in the, in the sea, to the shore. Uh, by this convict, and that officer's name was George Johnston. George Johnston was, in fact, the first European in Australia to start the colony. And George Johnston, uh, not Jewish, obviously, but someone about whom just up to that point an entire movie could be made, but George Johnston's story and life is intimately connected with the most famous Jewish convict in the First Fleet, and that, of course, is Esther Abrahams. I'm going to just go over Esther briefly, but I want to go in some depth because it is nothing short of astonishing that the Australian motion picture industry has not made of this woman's life, in fact, the, them as a couple, the most phenomenal story all of which is backed up by extensive research. We're not talking fiction here, we are talking complete historical reality. But Esther was a 
15, 16 year old girl on the streets of London in 1787. We're living quite a desperate existence. We're not entirely sure what family connections she had. Some historians have tried to work out connections, but we don't really know. And she is arrested and charged and tried and convicted for stealing a few yards of lace. Very circumstantial evidence, but that's what happened to her. And she sat for quite a few months in Newgate Jail and she entered Newgate Jail pregnant. Now the father, well not quite the father yet because she hadn't given birth, but whoever it was that uh, had, had uh, been a part of this pregnancy is a figure of some mystery. She said it was a tall, handsome, Sephardic Jew who went by the surname of Julian. Now there was a Julian family a Sephardic Julian family in London at the time, but locating that individual has been difficult, but Esther clung on to this romantic notion of this tall, handsome Sephardic man that she'd had this short liaison with and who was going to be the father of the child that was born in Newgate Jail, to whom she gave the name Rosanna. When eventually Esther was transported the Prince of Wales, which is the ship of the one of the eleven ships in the First Fleet, she had already given birth and was on the First Fleet with her tiny infant daughter, Rosanna, who ended up becoming <coughs> the first free Jewish settler in Australia. Because she arrived as the daughter of a convict, but she herself was free. Things must have been extremely tough for Esther. And a lot of people think, oh, the first fleet, how romantic. They set sail from England. They went around here. Must have been a wonderful cruise. <laughs> no. It was appalling. It was not actually appalling as the second fleet. The second fleet was known as the Nightmare Fleet. About 24 people died on that journey of the First Fleet, but that, I'm here to tell you, was quite remarkable. And that's due to the administration of Philip and the officers that were with him, not all of whom were big tzaddikim, I'm here to tell you, but they managed to get 95% of the convicts from one side of the world to the other. But it's no, they didn't go the way you think. Anyone know how they went? Where was the first place they went to after they left England? Huh? They went to Rio de Janeiro. They stocked up in Rio de Janeiro. Then they went east and they stopped in Cape Town. And then they caught the, the trade winds and they went through the Southern Ocean and came up to Botany Bay. The whole trip took 252 days. Something like eight, nine months horrendous. Now on that voyage Esther in a way that we're still trying to speculate upon but it's quite it's not that difficult to understand she was on board the Prince of Wales which was not which had a, a quite a few female convicts on her but was not an easy ship she was struggling to feed her baby she would have been getting harassed by sailors and by officers she was a young girl and an attractive young girl and vulnerable 
and over the course of the voyage she came under the protection of Arthur Phillips aide-de-camp one of the high-ranking officers of the New South Wales Marine Corps called George Johnston. Johnston to that point as I said could have already had a movie made about him. He saw his father die at the Battle of Bunkers Hill in the American War of Independence. He'd been severely and had eventually retired but came back. He was a young man in his mid-twenties. He came back to be part of the Marine Corps and take the first fleet to Australia. And he took some kind of protective care of Esther and had her transferred from the Prince of Wales to the Lady Penryn where she would be better cared for. That transference took place on the high seas in the middle of the ocean, not at some port. Esther and her baby, you can only begin to imagine this, were transferred from one ship to another to be under Johnston's protection. When the fleet arrived in South Africa, Johnston went ashore and bought a goat so that they could feed Rosanna. And when eventually they arrived in New South Wales, within a few short weeks, Johnston organised that Esther and her baby would be living in private quarters with him. A number of the officers had picked out female convicts that they were going to be responsible for. And Philip turned a blind eye to that because he thought it was a more manageable situation than just having prostitution run rife throughout the new colony and so on. And Esther, being a vulnerable young mother, single mother, she was thought that that was a good fit for Johnston. And the two of them formed a de facto relationship. And de facto unmarried relationships were tolerated in the early colony. It wasn't for another 20 years or so until some they started to try and put a stop to that. It's pretty rough and ready. Now, I'm here to tell you <laughs> that Australia, Sydney, <laughs> in the 1780s and 1790s, was a total Bach. I mean, I sometimes use the word Bach when I talk about, you know, the Carpathian Mountains in the 18th century where the Baal Shem Tov was. That was a Bach. But that was luxury compared to what New South Wales would have been in 1788 when they arrived. It's not even a question of whether or not you've got a flush toilet or not. There are no toilets. There are no nothing. Right? And over the first couple of years, the colony almost starved several times and then just were in the point of total desperation the second fleet arrived and another thousand convicts piled out of it these were tough times but eventually the colony found its own feet George and Esther plied out a life for themselves they got a shtickle land grant now of course as you would know Philip eventually went back to London, a little early actually. Evening Rabbi, you're just in time, I haven't said anything really. In 1792, and uh, there were a couple of years before the next governor arrived. Who was, don't call out, put your hand, who was the second governor, you've all heard of him, who was the second governor of New South Wales? Put your hand up if you know. 
No, 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 no. That's way. Who was? No, 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 it wasn't. Huh? Who, was, who replaced Arthur Phillip? No, 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 no. I love this. I love this guessing game, but I'll to, go on, Tony. No, 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 no. That's what she said. No, no, that's way later. Hunter. Governor Hunter. He lasted, now, in the hiatus between Philip and Hunter, you've all heard, because if you live in Australia, you know the, most of the geographical locations in this country are named after its early governors. So between Philip and Hunter, there was a hiatus of a couple of years. So who was raised was the New South Wales Marine Corps, which had become the New South Wales Corps. Johnston had decided not to go back to England, but to stay in New South Wales and be one of the major officers of the New Instituted Corps. And they ran riot. And the people like Fr Lieutenant Governor Francis Gross and so on, trade and they, of course, very, very quickly, they worked out how to ferment grain and rum was running rife. And that's so that when Hunter came out, Hunter spent most of his time trying to fight the New South Wales Corps, establish this colony, because you've got convicts that were being paid in rum, and rum was the only currency, they didn't even have any means, and so the whole colony was going down the toilet because officers were just trying to... You're shaking your head. They did, but that, but that, but that not under Hunter. That wasn't till the next governor. That wasn't till the next governor in 1818. I know exactly what you're saying, Shelley. They had to actually import coins because they didn't have coins. They had a few, but it wasn't enough in the 1790s. But during that whole period, George is clearing some forests and they're constructing this house where the famous house that George and Esther built in Annandale. Annandale's like a suburb of Western Sydney now, but out then it was like, you know, Yenemsville, a new thing, and they built this nice stately home and they cleared quite a few acres. Esther has now given birth to three or four other children to George. Rosanna's growing up. They're living a nice country life. She's respectable. They're not married. Everybody knows that, but that was the standard thing. And then Hunter went back to England and was replaced by... People are scared to say. <laughs> King. Philip Gidley King. And King really, really tried to fight what became known as the Rum Corps. Basically, the New South Wales Corps that was still running the place and the economy through rum and so on. And he was the one who started importing, trying to get the economy, introduce new things. George and Esther were at the forefront of trying to develop new things in Australia. They planted the first Norfolk Pines. They trained and, and broke in and trained the first thoroughbred horses. They were doing a lot of things that became very fundamental to the colony. And of course, Johnston was good mates with a man who had come on the second fleet who was going to have a profound influence on early Australia and whose vision really compounded itself on Australia for the next century. And that, of course, was... MacArthur. So MacArthur's starting to get sheep and they're all starting to get going, but they all hate the governor and the governor hates them. So we're starting to get all these conflicts happening. And you'll remember your Australian Jewish history. Not your Australian Jewish, your Australian history. And Johnston 
gets a big commendation from King because he puts down the big rebellion at Castle Hill. You see, the British in their wisdom didn't just send out petty criminals thieving on the streets. They also sent out Irish political prisoners. So a couple of hundred of them decided in around 1804 that they would establish a new republic called New Ireland and that they were going to flick the forks at British rule. And of course, that rebellion had to be put down and Johnston was at the forefront of that. So by this time, he's almost, he's already a major and he's pretty much the chief military officer in the colony and Esther is his wife. And then of course, the famous, if I have to be careful about how much time I spend on this because we'll get lost, but it's, it's too important not to go into it. And of course, in 1808, oh, well, in 1805, King goes back, and in 1806, who comes out? Bly. And that's Bly, the famous Bly from the Mutiny on the Bounty. That's already behind him, and he comes out again to be a governor of New South Wales, and he really takes on the Rum Corps, and he finds himself at total loggerheads with MacArthur and so on. I'm putting into detail because we're going to talk about people to come back into this history, but I'm laying out the basic framework of it. And then, of course, the famous, the famous events of the 26th of January, 1808. Exactly 20 years to the day since the landing of the First Fleet. And that, of course, was that the New South Wales Corps, led by George Johnston, deposed the governor and sent him packing back to England. It was the first and only, that we know about, military coup in Australia's history. And Johnston announced himself as acting lieutenant governor. He was the effective ruler and authority of the entire colony of New South Wales, which meant that what? Esther was now the first lady of the, of the colony. Not only did she insist on being called first lady, but Johnston insisted people call her and she, she attended Johnston at official functions as the first lady of the colony. This girl from the streets of London who had come on the first fleet rose to become the first lady of the colony of New South Wales. But that's not obviously where their story ended. Eventually Johnston went back to England to justify his actions and was eventually court-martialed and he was cashiered, which meant that they declared him innocent of mutiny, but he had, to leave the, he had to leave the army. And he could only go back to New South Wales as a private citizen. Now, during the time of the military junta, after they deposed Bly, the military junta had made a number of land grants. Some of those land grants had been made by Johnston and his mates to various people, including Esther herself. Johnston stayed in England beyond his own court-martial to argue the case in the courts for the retention of these grants, many of which were disqualified by the colonial authorities in London, but he stayed until he had secured for Esther her land grants. 
and eventually came back to Sydney in 1813 with the confirmational documents that Esther was in fact going to be the first female landowner in Australian history. This is astonishing. And of course, shortly after that, they got married. She had never married him to that point because she says, I can't marry out of my faith. Amazing thing. But eventually, I think there's the sheer weight of gratitude and also because because <laughs> by 1813, 1814, Australia is a different place and they're not going to put up with men and women and they're living together without being married and also because their children were pressing them very much forward as well so that they could be themselves legitimised. And of course, there was a new governor in town because Bly went back and in 1810, who came out? Macquarie. And already <laughs> Macquarie is a very different kind of governor, a different kind of person. He actually even came with his own private army. And that was the end of the New South Wales cause influence. They actually got disbanded and already Australia is entering into a new phase. We'll come back to that in a moment. Esther's story is phenomenal. The fact that she was Jewish, was ab and even not just Jewish, but a convict, was no impediment to her reaching the highest levels within the society at the time and that theme has been very very much a part of Australian history going forward. Jews in this country, I mean maybe a little bit culturally but certainly politically and socially have never been prevented from rising to the highest possible levels and that is due to people like now, interestingly enough, just one more minute on the Esther story because people don't realise, of course, Rosanna grew up and Rosanna married. She became the second, when she was 18, she became the second wife of a guy in his 30s called Isaac Nichols, who was, of course, the first postmaster uh, in, in, in New South Wales, in Australia. Someone had to go down to the boats and collect the mail, otherwise there was mayhem the first postmaster, they had a son, Rosanna and Isaac had a son called George, George Nichols. And George Nichols, they sent, who is halachically Jewish, his mother was Rosanna, and George was sent to England to study law and came back to become the first Australian born solicitor. Eventually entered parliament and this is significant, and this is why I'm saying it, eventually entered Parliament, was elected to the Legislative Council, where he argued successfully for, this is much later, this is decades later, for Jewish ministers to be recognised by the Crown for the purposes of uh, benefits and taxations and stipends and so on. In other words, to put rabbis and reverends and Jewish ministers servicing the Jewish community religiously were put on the same level as Christian ministers. This is a huge thing. Australia was achieving a parity between Jews and other citizens decades and decades before these ideas of emancipation were actually realised in Europe itself, which was the kind of bastion of civilization. The other important individual that you would need to know from the First Fleet, Esther, if you don't know Esther Abrahams, you don't know anything about the First Fleet, so we've done that. 
But who would be the second most famous Jew from the First Fleet? Any ideas? Sorry? Oh, you're talking, you're talking about Aki Solomon? No, I, 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 people keep thinking Aki Solomon was on the First Fleet, but Aki Solomon... Oh, much later. Aki Solomon didn't turn up until 1820. I mean, he was actually sentenced to transportation in 1810. But he didn't turn up in Tasmania until 1828 when he heard about what was going on with his family. He was in New York. He's a whole other story. No, the, the other very famous person you would need to know from the First Fleet would be John Harris. Oh, who's John Harris? <laughs> well, John Harris... John Harris... Uh, Bit of a bit of a hard luck story, but found himself convicted, found himself transported, but very clearly made it very clear to the authorities very early on that he was uh, much more capable than his circumstances would suggest. Uh, that he had had a bit of a, a misfortune of luck to have found himself in that situation, and was a very capable and impressive fellow. So much so that even already as a convict, he was allowed to propose to Arthur Philip that they set up a night watch of the convicts, a supervisory night watch to make sure that none of the other scallywag convict men were roaming around aimlessly at night, pestering the women or doing whatever they're doing and to apprehend people who were guilty of offences. In other words, effectively, Australia's first police force. He was so good at it that they sent him to the new colony in Norfolk Island for a while. And eventually he came back and became our first constable and started Australia's police force. So the first policeman in Australia was in fact a Jew called John Harris. By the late 1790s, Harris had had enough of being a policeman and decided he wanted to go into private business. And it just so happened that they had just then, just then, starting to distribute. Hunter, in his attempt to control what was going on, said, OK, I can't ban liquor. That seems impossible. But we're going to have a licensing system. So you have to be licensed. And if you want to be licensed, you have to be this kind of person and that kind of person. You have to do this. And Harris was one of those who, with the support of MacArthur, became a lic you know, licensed to make and provide liquor. Uh, but that didn't hold Harris very well because he ran into foul of Governor King, who was trying to stop the whole trade in rum and... He wanted Harris to go back to become a constable, to become a policeman. He needed policemen and eventually got some charges and sent some, some officers down to Harris's uh, warehouses and destroyed all his stock of rum. Harris had a massive hissy about that, as you can imagine, and ended up sailing back England in order to plead his case unsuccessfully. We don't eventually know what happened to Harris, but just the 10 years that he was effective in the colony, uh, already established Australia's police force because by when he did retire from the constabulary of South Wales, he handed the reins of Australia's early police force over to a very close friend of his who was another Jew. 
And this is probably that Jew, it's probably this famous Jew of the Second Fleet. The Second Fleet arrived in 1790 and it contained with it also a number of Jews, including a very, very enterprising individual called James Lara. James Lara was, definitively and unusually, a Sephardic Jew of Spanish origin. Some sources refer to him as a French Jew, and there's almost no question that he spoke French, but he was in fact of Spanish origin. He was from a, the well-known Lara family in London, obviously had fallen on difficult ways, got himself arrested, got him transported, but once again, extremely capable. Extremely capable. Became close with Harris, took over the constabulary from Harris, and was so effective and so impressed the authorities that they started giving him some fairly significant land grants and he became an extremely successful businessman setting up all sorts of businesses but most particularly liquor outlets. <coughs> Once again, a friend of MacArthur and he effectively was the most well-known and successful Jew in the colonies, certainly right up until uh, almost 1820. He was called the Nabob of Parramatta. And he opened in Parramatta. I mean, there's only a few thousand people in the colony by this time, by the early 1800s, but he opened in Parramatta the Mason's Arms, which was the first licensed hotel in Australia. Next to the Mason's Arms opened a dining room which became the first restaurant in Australia. So uh, now, well, 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 one, one thing I just want to make clear because it's, uh, we, we just need to understand this just, just if we're going to put ourselves in that frame of mind two things to bear in mind. One is the ratio of men to women was extremely not balanced, right? Probably for the first few decades of the colony, it was probably about nine or ten to one. And therefore these Jewish boys, if they wanted to find a partner, you can imagine if it was difficult enough with a 10 to 1 male to female ratio, how difficult it would have been to find a Jewish woman. Moreover, there were no Jewish marriages. There was no such thing as Judaism. There might have been Jews, but Jewish practices and Jewish ceremonies and Jewish rites of observance did not exist. It was run by the Church of England, was effectively the ideology of the colony. For the first few years, all people in the colony, all settlers, convicts, officers, no matter who they were, had to attend church services every Sunday. You'd be flogged if you didn't. If you wanted to get married, there was only one way to get married, and that was by whoever was the chaplain or the minister. So, as much as these boys might have felt very strongly Jewish, and Lara definitely did, 
they had no choice but to find and marry women that were not of the faith. Lara was not successful in love. He married three times. After his first wife died, and already he was an extremely wealthy and successful emancipated convict, he'd already got his, his full pardon in 1800. He went on from strength to strength, became wealthy, opened the hotels. He was also, he was also Australia's first news agent. The Sydney Gazette deposited at the Mason's Arms. You could get it there. He was the first person to sell newspapers. This is incredible how Jews were there right from the very beginning. Uh, and in, after his wife died, he married the widow of another extremely convict. And after a year, she died, and he was tried for that because rumours went that he had caused her death through what was referred to as bizarre sexual practices. We have no idea what that could mean. So we know what it would mean now. We don't know what it would mean in 1814 in the colony, but probably the same thing. But um, that he was acquitted of that. He was acquitted of that after, a, I mean, very quickly, actually. The court found of that. It was purely scuttlebutton rumour, but it totally ruined his reputation. He ended up marrying a time, and the, his third wife, who was much younger than him and an actress and so on, just ended up dissipating all his money and left him. And he had to be reclaimed from debtor's prison by Harris's daughters, who remembered the kindness the. Of, of, of their father and his father and that friendship and in the sake of that they, he lived out uh, his last year um, living uh, out the back of Elizabeth Harris's place. Um, the, these were, all, a lot of these convicts had very very stories where they hit these triumphs. I mean even Esther Abrahams, even Esther Abrahams, the last few years of her life were fought in the courts against her children who were trying to declare her insane so that they could take all of her assets. Uh, in fact, James Lara testified at, the at, at one of those court cases regarding Esther Abrahams. So everybody knew each other and everybody knew each other's business. By the way, there is a rumour, and I'm here to tell you it's only a rumour, it's a very strange rumour, that in her later years in Annandale, uh, in her later years, that Esther opened... <coughs> A kosher kitchen. Um, this, this this kind of smells a bit of myth. Uh, she has been highly apologised, Esther Abrahams. I can't imagine anyone in 1820 going out to Annandale for a schnitzel. I, I, I'm not seeing it, but I'm just letting you know that those rumours abound in historical discourse. She is the most remarkable, per one of the most remarkable women and people that this country has ever seen, really, in terms of her story. But also equally with Harris, equally with Lara, they reached these great heights, but their fall from grace was also quite dramatic and spectacular. But when we're talking about fall from grace, nothing really matches in terms of highlights of Australian Jewish history. What I'm about to tell you, and some of you will know this, what happened in 1803. 1803, by the way, is a very interesting year in Australian history and Australian Jewish history. You'll see what happened in 1803. Correct. Is that, <laughs> is that in fact, 
uh, that is the year in which they set up the first colony in, Vict in what was going to become Victoria. It wasn't Victoria then, uh, in Port Phillip Bay, and they set up a colony at Sorrento that lasted for only a few months. It was miserable. They couldn't, they just couldn't make it work. And basically, at the end of the day, David Collins, who was in charge of that colony, picked everyone up and moved it uh, with Governor King's permission, moved the whole colony to what eventually, to the Derwent River and what eventually became Hobart in, in Van Diemen's land. There were Jews, it's interesting because uh, uh, once again, once again, we're still trying to sort out, you know, um, you know Max Gordon's book on Van Diemen's, right? So when you open up the first pages of that, he says, there were no Jews in that, in the transport of the Calcutta into Hobart. And then the next major academic work that's brought out says, lists all the Jews, six Jews, eight Jews, whatever it is. There were, of course, so we're constantly re-finding more and more about Jewish life in early Australia, but there were Jews in that first early colony in Sorrento and in the first colony that went on to form Hobart. But 1803 was also an extraordinary year for another reason. Because there was a poor young man called Joseph Samuel. Now, now Joseph Samuel was a not someone who had necessarily lived a particularly righteous or impressive existence to that point. He wasn't a Harris or a Lara. He came out, he was convicted of, of theft, he came breaking and entry, he came out in uh, in 1800, 1801, and already he wasn't one of those convicts who said, you know, this is already by now we've introduced the ticket of leave system so that you can actually fill out your sentence and then you might even be given a land, you can go home, they'll, they'll ship you back to England if that's what you want, or you can stay here and you get a stick of land grant. And who knows what you might be able to do with that, build a house, grow some tomatoes, whatever it is. But those were reformed convicts. Joseph Samuel was not exactly a reformed convict. And even after he uh, kind of uh, got a little bit of freedom, he, he fell in with bad company. Now, it's important to realise also another thing about the colony is that certainly for the first 15 years or so, the authorities were not particularly concerned with people who tried to escape. Why? There's nowhere to go. <laughs> nowhere to go. Well, and basically, die. escape meant death. You, the Aborigines are not going to help you. And you can't, there's nothing to eat and nothing to drink. And you'll wander around in the bush. You'll die. Event. We know this. Even today, you get lost in the bush in Australia today. Your chances are not high, let alone how what it must have been like then. So they weren't concerned about this. So Joseph Samuel fell in with a group of fellows that decided that they would run away from the colony, but they didn't run too far. They were just hanging on the outside of the colony and they raided a woman's home, an established woman's home, and they were surprised in that raid by one of the early constables and they killed him. They killed a policeman. 
So of course, once you kill a policeman, then the authorities are definitely going to take an interest in you, and they rounded up the whole gang. The trouble was, is that the only one in the gang that the woman identified was Joseph Samuel, this poor Nochschlepper Jew who was part of this. So they forced Joseph Samuel into a kind of confession, and he said this, It is true. I can't deny it. I was part of that group and we did raid that woman's home with a mind to take things. But I didn't kill anyone. And I didn't even know that policeman was dead. I didn't know they'd killed him. I know nothing about that, but I was there and we were trying to rob the place. I know nothing about the murder. And they said, but you're the only one that's been identified, so you're going to have to take responsibility for the whole thing. You're going to hang. And he said, but I never killed anyone. They said, doesn't matter. You're going to hang. And on the 26th of September, in Parramatta, in 1803, a huge crowd assembled to see Joseph Samuel get hung. And they put this poor, weak little Jew, who must have weighed max, I don't know, 90 pounds or something, they put him on the back of a cart. There was, in fact, another convict that was being hung at the same time for a different offence. So, you know, you get two for the price of one. And I can tell you, this is before Netflix. So there wasn't a lot to do. And if there's a hanging in town, you're going to go and watch it. They put Joseph Samuel on the back of the cart. And also, these are the days before your trapdoors, so you didn't break your neck. You actually swung there until you died of suffocation and the thing, God, God forbid, I don't want to think about it. But they put these guys on the back of the, of, the, uh, of, of the cart and they kick the cart with the horse. The horse walks off and you're left there uh, for the next four to five minutes until you die. So they did that and they put the noose around his neck and he's saying the whole time, I didn't kill anyone, I didn't kill anyone. Now, before we even get to that point, what is remarkably significant about this is that this is the first time we have some kind of recording of a Jewish prayer service because the Jews that did attend and that were in the colony gathered together and prayed for Joseph Samuel's soul. And they sat with him and they said a few psalms and whatever it is they could. Many of them were not, uh, not particularly learned. It's not like they had access to the best education. But they knew a few things and they said whatever they said. It was the first Jewish prayer service was at the hanging of Joseph Samuel. And they put Joseph Samuel on the cart and they kicked the horses away and the other convict swinging there. And Joseph Samuel is there saying, I didn't kill anyone. And as he says, the rope snaps and he falls to the ground. So they pick him up. The hangman checks the rope. Hold a thousand weight. All this is a reason you'll find out why all this is fully recorded. And they put him back on the cart. And they kick the horse away again. And he dangles there for half a minute and the whole thing falls down and he falls once again on the floor and he sprains his ankle. 
So by this time the crowd's going like, whoa. They pick him up again. They put him back on the cart. They go, they test it. Meanwhile, the other convicts are like, oh. Virtually dead already. In fact, he dies in the next few seconds. This is the third time they put him on the cart. They tie the noose around it. They check it again. They kick the cart. And no sooner do they kick the cart then the rope snaps again and Joseph Samuel falls to the ground by which time the crowd's going berserk and they go and get the governor and King comes to Parramatta and announces officially and you can read it in the records of Governor King an officially documented miracle of divine intervention we cannot hang this man he is clearly innocent of this crime and they let him go and he went to hospital to have his ankle treated. <laughs> that day was the 26th of September 1803, Yom Kippur. Amazing. And the whole time he's saying, I didn't kill anyone, I didn't kill anyone. Three times it snapped, officially recorded in the documents of the governor, divine intervention, not hung. Unfortunately, Joseph Samuel drowned a few years later, also on the run from the authorities. But a remarkable, remarkable story of a miracle that's documented in Australian Jewish history. Um, now, I know that there would be a temptation. On my, my, my family happens to have been in this country for a very, very long time. And obviously it would be tempting of me to turn this into my personal slide night. I won't, but I'm just going to sprinkle this and maybe next week's talk with a couple of little anecdotes because one of the people that was at that hanging was the earliest of my first ancestors, direct ancestors to be in this country, which was Nathan Lyon Nathan. Nathan Lyon Nathan was convicted on the streets of London, who is my great, 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 great grandfather, that's four G's, I was convicted on the streets of London. I, I, I mean, full, full respect, full respect to John Levi, but when you read about it in his books on Nathan Lyon, Nathan, he gets it all wrong. Nathan, Nathan was on the streets, he was back and forth running an ent entry, different things, and he happened in the Haymarket, he happened to see a young girl and started chatting to her. She was carrying some kind of peklach from one place to another, and he introduced himself as Isaac Newton. Uh, and then he'd be later told the police his name was Nathaniel Newton. Anyway, he was eventually uh, tried at the Old Bailey and uh, convicted to transportation. He, in, he arrived in 1800, served his seven years, witnessed the, uh, the event that I said with Joseph Samuel, uh, served his seven years and then went back to England. Why, apart from being my great-great-great-great-grandfather, what's, what's important about him is his influence after he got back to England, because in the subsequent few decades, he married almost as soon as he got back. He married um, Sarah Nathan, who was the uh, daughter of Haim Nathan, whose tailor shop on Savile Row is still there. Nathan, Nathan, all of his children in the next few decades emigrated to Australia. And with every single one of them, he gave a considerable endowment, like a hundred pounds worth of 
supplies and, and, and assets to start them off on their new life. So a lot of these children were actually able to come here. The Nathan family, extremely influential right throughout New Zealand, especially in New South Wales. One of his daughters, Rosetta Nathan, we'll look at next week because she is one of the candidates for the first ever chuppah in Australia. And his other daughter, who is my great-great-great-grandmother, uh, Mary uh, Solomon Benjamin, who uh, founded, uh, the, one of the founders of the Turak Shul and, of, of Melbourne Hebrew Congregation, so there is a kind of a personal connection with that story and those uh, particular events. But really, the story of what happens is very, very much tied in with the whole general pattern of what's happening in Australian colonial society and the Society of New South Wales at the time. Because as I said, in 1810, Things change because we get a new governor, and that governor is Macquarie. And Macquarie is a totally different type of governor, as I said, comes with his own army, and he's going to establish his own visionary principles. And Macquarie deeply believed, unlike governors both before and after him, deeply believed in the capacity of people to reform and to go from being convicts to serving their time to being contributing, productive members of a society that could reach the highest levels. And Macquarie encouraged this. He encouraged the emancipists, of course, to the great consternation of the exclusivists. And the exclusivists were those who believed that you can never trust a convict and that the new society in Australia needed to be founded by honest men of good stock and good character. These debates are going to be played out in the Australian Jewish community over the next few decades. Remember that in the 19th century, first of all, not, not to mention the early 19th even the late 19th century, you didn't talk about convicts in your past. Now it's kind of trendy. But then, convicts, you never remind, it was like, you know, it was, it was like the Holocaust for them, really. You don't want to talk about it. It's not, in fact, it was more. It was like as though it never happened. But Macquarie had a vision that he wanted these people to become a contributing part. And obviously, during Macquarie's time, we start to see the arrival of the first Jewish free settlers coming here simply in search of a better life, more economic opportunities. Not that there were that many, but certainly more than they could have had in London. And the first free settlers that we see arriving, we call part of chain migration. Chain migration are Jews that come out here because they are connected with someone who has been convicted. So Esther Isaacs, once again a woman, the first of her own volition, free settler, comes to Australia because her husband, a couple of years earlier, uh, Jacob Isaacs, has been convicted and transported. And when she arrives here, she becomes pregnant from Jacob, and their daughter Rachel is the first child born in Australia of two Jewish parents. And that happens in the late, like for some, at some point around 1817-1818. of course, is a deeply significant year in Australian Jewish history. Because 1817, 
the end of this kind of period I'm looking at tonight, 1817 is the year of the very beginning of Jewish communal organization, which really, in a sense, owes itself to one individual. And that individual is an ex-convict called Joseph Marcus. Joseph Marcus also, not an easy story. When you, if, you, if you do research on Joseph Marcus, you'll see. Joseph Marcus was unusual in that unlike any of the other convicts that had come out here from England or else, Joseph Marcus had actually studied in yeshivas. He'd spent about seven years studying in yeshivot in Poland, where he'd been born in Germany, but he'd studied in Poland, he studied in Germany, and he was quite a learned individual. I don't know whether he was actually had the qualification of a rabbi, but he certainly was the Gaon of Vilna compared to anybody else in the colony. And he had with him a few books like a Sidur and a Humash. And during the time that he was in the colony, I mean, he'd been there from 1791. He was probably present at the hanging of Elias Davis, who was a, a Jewish convict that did hang. He wasn't present at the Joseph Samuel hanging because during that particular time, Joseph Marcus had found himself, together with some other settlers, uh, marooned and shipwrecked on the south of New Zealand as a result of a very severely um, bad attempt to try and escape from the colony, grab a boat and, uh, and get out of here. Um, but he returned in 1804, 1805. Next few years, he has to rehabilitate himself. Um, and there's some, there's a kind of a schleppiness to his story. Every time things get going, things go wrong and so on. But Joseph Marcus, during the course of his time in New South Wales, actually tried to encourage Jews to uh, think about how they might come together to do the things that Jews need to do. And he is recorded as being the first person to actually go and visit Jewish people in hospitals when they were sick or even sometimes when they were locked up in jails. He did that. He was a kind of like a kind of like a bit of a proto-Chabad Shaliach, but it, it's hard to describe and understand what, it was, what exactly it was he was doing. We know he was doing these things because one of the major Anglican ministers in Sydney at the time, uh, William Cowper, was writing letters back to England explaining, in fact, to the Society of the Promotion of Christianity amongst the Jews, and about how he'd become friends with Joseph Marcus and was trying to convert him to Christianity and Joseph Marcus wasn't having any of it. These discussions were happening at, back already from 1810. By 1817, and this could have only really happened under Macquarie, probably not under the next governor who was Darling, who had a very different approach to things, but under Macquarie there was a, there was a kind of a very lenient attitude towards ex-convicts and just they were building a new cemetery at Devonshire Street and in Sydney, where the Central Railway Station is now, and Joseph Marcus and a few others applied to Macquarie to have a section of the new cemetery put aside for Jewish burial, as part of which they raised subscriptions from whichever Jews they knew to form the first Jewish organization in this country, which was, of course, the Sydney Hevra Kadisha. 
The Sydney Herakadisha was established in 1817. Now we can look at a pamphlet and go, oh yeah, interesting. But only when we actually think about it do we realize how remarkable that was. It was in 1817. There's no one here except convicts. The first free settlers had only just started arriving and even they were only coming because they had relatives who were convicts. And Joseph Marcus, according to the letters that we know, Cowper back to the Society for the Promotion of Christianity amongst Jews back in London, we know that Joseph Marcus was not only, because he didn't leave any records, not only organized the burial society, but was gathering Jews together for the purposes of worship. They were having once or twice a week, they would have services. We are not yet at the level of Ashul. We are not yet at the level of anything beyond maybe a week, once or twice a week, Jews would gather in Joseph Marcus's house or someone's residence and say a few prayers and maybe say the Shema and maybe look at a Siddur, maybe read something from a Chumash, whatever it was they were doing, maybe have a chat. Joseph Marcus really is the granddaddy, the grandfather of Australian Jewish communities. And he schlepped this out until he himself died and was buried in that Jewish section of the cemetery in 1828. In 1828, in the very year that he died, is the year that there arrived in the colony the person that we're going to look at next week, who is of course going to become the father of Australian Jewish communities. And that of course is Philip Joseph Cohen. No, he's not shaking his head, so I'm doing all right. And so, yeah, no, no, he actually, because Cohen arrived in May and Joseph Marcus died in November of 1928. So exactly the same year that he died, uh, Cohen arrived. And uh, the significance of Cohen arriving we're going to look at next week. But it's very important to understand that what Joseph Marcus did in establishing, first of all, the concept that there is a community. Secondly, to actually say, we need a burial society because Jews need to be buried differently. And to start, house, start services of worship is a massively significant moment. And of course, when he died, they've made a tombstone for him, which contains on his tombstone the last two lines of Adon Olam in Hebrew. So they actually formed the first public Hebrew inscription in this country, and that tombstone uh, can still be seen. So none of that, and the final point that I want to make about all that is, is that none of that really would be possible if we don't understand Jewish history in the framework of the wider history. We need to understand the currents that were happening in Australia. The exclusive versus emancipist debate is taking off, and Macquarie is obviously forming and shifting and changing the whole nature of Australian society that allows the opportunities for these remarkable individuals to not only hold on to but to create what is going to become this immensely vibrant Jewish community. So I have some notes, I'll just make sure I, 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 they reflect something of what I spoke about tonight. Um, Yes, they more or less do. So feel welcome to help yourself to those. Um, look, it's always a little bit testing, the first one, um, so because I need to know where to pitch it. So let me know if I'm pitching it too high or too low or too exciting or too boring, whichever one it is. But um, 
next week, uh, it's really going to start getting, and, 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 and don't be put off by a topic like, you know, the beginnings of community, because it really is fascinating for us to understand, sitting here now in 2018 in Caulfield Shul, to understand uh, the nature of what brought us to this point and how community starts. So thank you for listening to all of that. find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.